So last week, <clears throat> if you were here, you, you might recall I started the, uh, the sermon with a, a brief story about my son Andrew and a soccer game that he had participated in. And if you recall, the game started wherein they gave up a goal within the first minute. I arrived about four minutes in. I went up. I was like, wow, we're already down. And, the, and the, one of the parents is like, yeah, it's super ugly. You know, and so we were all, and then I, I watched Andrew. And if you remember, he struggled. He was discouraged. He, you know, he didn't, he wasn't really persevering very well. It, it ended up that they, the team didn't respond. They ended up being shut out. Um, but, you know, it was, it's an interesting thing because a few days time, and a little bit of time to rethink and recalibrate and go back to the Lord. It, it makes a big difference. Um, this week, they had a chance again to play a game. And this time, you know, Andrew had you know, gone before the Lord, refocused, got back his priorities, get, get fired up and try to get motivated to persevere, you know, no matter what the outcome. And this time, it was a notably different result. Uh, not only was Andrew fired up, the whole team came out fired up. And instead of being shut out, this game ended in the mercy rule, which means that in high school soccer, if you have an eight-goal eight advantage, they just end the game. They just said, game over. And so, sure enough, they ended up beating their opponent by, by a score of nine to one, and the game came to an end early. And it was like, wow, you know, what, what a difference. <laughs> One day, you're looking at them all discouraged, and they're just defeated. And now they get this victory. And of course, the Lord, you know, Andrews, you know, we, we all prayed to the Lord and thanked the Lord, you know, afterwards and thanking for him, helping him through. Uh, but this is what I want us to consider today as we go back to Romans 8. Last week, we looked at the first, you know, half or so, maybe two-thirds. I want to go back to Romans 8 and see how is it that we can carry on and persevere and live with confidence, especially when we live in a time that Paul says we suffer, we groan, we have issues, we toil, we have tribulation, so on and so forth. Well, Romans 8, the latter part of it, really gives us some big time answers. So a little bit of very rapid recap from last week. We saw last time that Paul presented some huge truths about the work of Christ and the opportunity that we have as believers. Number one, he started out and just said very boldly, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Number two, he says, God did something for us as believers that the law could not do. And that was he made it possible for us to live holy and righteous lives by setting us free from sinful flesh he sent Christ to condemn sin in the flesh, it says at the beginning of chapter 8. And now we no longer have to live under the demands of the sinful flesh. It's now, point three, it's possible for us. We have an opportunity now to walk by the Spirit. And in doing so, we ourselves can fulfill the very law of God, as it says in Romans 8, 4. And he goes on. It doesn't end there. He goes on a fourth point we brought up last time. We now have been transferred from a spirit of slavery that was leading to fear, having to try to meet this, these demands of the law while still having this flesh, you know, bondage to the flesh. 
Now we've been set free and given a spirit of adoption as sons. And not just that, he goes on and says, and by the way, heirs of God, inheritors, heirs of God, and heirs of Christ Jesus, fellow heirs of Christ, with Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, but just like Christ did when he had to suffer and come to this earth and suffer through tribulation, we now also go through a time of suffering, if you remember, so that in the future, we will be glorified with him. If you remember, Paul said, I counted, I did the math, I, I calculated, I reckoned it, and I calculate that the glory that will be revealed in that day far outweighs the suffering that we go through now. And we looked at that last week. He uses this term that there will be a revealing, an apocalypsis, this uncovering, opening of the cover to see the glory of God. And not just God, the glory in the children of God, the sons of God in glory as well. Uh, we talked also in point six about, but now, right now, we still though, both we and the creation, go through a time period of groaning. For the creation, they groan because they've been subjected to this futile cycle of reproduction and death and decay. And I shared with you my sad story of my pet sculpin that passed away and I was sad and I actually cried and had, went out and buried this little sculpin. That was from last week. You can go listen to that if you want. It's a, pretty, a very heart-rending heart story that the little sculpin fish died. But nonetheless... That's the cycle of creation. But we as believers, we also groan, Paul says. And he says, we groan because we're living in an unredeemed bodies. We're looking forward to the full adoption as sons, the completion of which is that we will get redeemed new bodies. And so we look forward to that. Uh, but we groan for today. And then seventh point we saw, he called us to live by perseverance, this hupomone Greek word, to live under a load and bear under it. And he said, to do this, we need to have hope, a conviction of things unseen, he says. For those people that hope in something they see, that isn't really hope, uh, Paul said. So we need to have a confident expectation in these things of the future and the glorification that is to come. And he doesn't end there. There's two more things that we need, he says. And that's where I want to pick up today in 826. The first thing he says is we need a helper. 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Have you ever had a time that you, you wanted to pray, you didn't know what to pray, how to pray? You might not even, you, many times for me, say, what is the will of God? That's always a huge part of our prayer, right? And in this case, he says, we, we need a helper in that regard. We need a helper that goes and intercedes for us and does so, get this, according to the will of God the Father. And it's awesome in 27, he says, He who searches the hearts, that's God, the Father, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he, the Spirit, intercedes for us according to God's will. So this whole idea about knowing the will, and, and having one that could go before us, and actually align that request to God's will, 
That's one of the key roles of the Spirit. And it's an awesome thing. And this whole idea is, well, maybe the message won't get through. Maybe it won't. Well, that's the whole point of what he's trying to say. Searching the heart and the mind for things that you may not even know how to say. The Spirit takes that to the Father. And oh, by the way, if you don't think that communication path is going to happen, it says, the Lord knows, the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. And the Spirit then intercedes for us on, in, on the, according to the will of the Father. So an awesome view here for us saying, we have a need for this helper, right? We have a need for someone to help us in our prayer. And now another thing that he, he goes on and he presents is he says, we need to understand and know and rely upon God's providential power. In 828, we know that God causes all things to work for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, obviously, we don't have time to dive into the magnitude. Theologians have spent years pondering these realities. And the, real, the thing that I want to point out is you can do that. You can dive in, spend months, and it's good. But I want to look at just what, what's the principle of what Paul's trying to get at by presenting this reality with this calling and this predestination. Well, number one, all the things that we go through, the suffering, the groanings, the waiting for this future day of glorification. He starts out in 828 and says, all those things will ultimately work out for good, right? For those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, they will work out for good. Number two, he tells us very plainly what the ultimate goal is here that he's working us toward. And that is to be conformed to the image of, of the Son of God. And I'll just pause there and ask, have you ever considered and, and stopped to think about that reality that you can be somehow conformed to the image of the very Son of God? Not part way, not sort of a third of the way there, but his goal is to bring you into complete conformity with the very Son of God. That is an incredible reality. And one day it'll be, it'll have, he'll, he'll reach that conclusion. He will bring us into full conformity to the image of his son. And then number three, he, he wants to make it clear that those addressed in this statement about all this stuff working for good and conforming to his image, those are the ones that love God and are called according to his purpose. And a calling that God himself ensures, and it's a calling and work of God that reaches, if you saw this, it reaches the ultimate fruition in the glorification. Did you see that at the end of the, of the chain of things that occurred? It ended in glorification, which has been a subject of the earlier part of the chapter. You may ask the question, can this calling fail? And I think that's why he brings up these verses like 29 and 30. Because that's the, if he, what causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Well, what are, how, how certain is this calling? Maybe that verse of 28 doesn't work out all the time. Well, no, he said, if you're in the called, and let me tell you about what the called means and who's the power source behind it. 
Can the calling fail? No, because God was the instigator and power source behind the effectiveness of it. The called will reach their destination is what Paul's getting at. And in one sense, it's interesting, if you look at the tenses here, it's as if they're already there. Did you catch that every one of those verbs was past tense, predestined, justified, Indian glorified, called, all these things. They're all past tense. They're actually all in the Greek aorist tense, which means a past, completed action with a, abiding results. So you could say the called, a past, completed action with abiding results. Justified, a past, completed action with abiding results. And get this, glorified, a past, completed action with abiding results. You say... How can that be? Well, in God's economy, he looks at it through Christ as if he's glorified Christ. You too, it's as if even today you sit here before the Lord as if fully glorified. Now, will there come a day when that reaches where you, you will actually be able to see that at the revealing? Yes, but it's an incredible chain that he presents. And we know that this calling, we know a little even more about it in Romans eleven twenty nine. 29, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. These are huge realities that show God is behind these things. His providential power in causing all things to work together for our good and reaching the ultimate goal to be conformed to the image of his son is an incredible reality that Paul wants us to see. And then he goes on, he says, and if these things are true, and if you really believe these things, let's ask some questions. First off, what shall we say then to these things? He says in 31, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for all of us. He will not also with him freely give us all things. Will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Question mark. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I, Paul says, am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, amen. Paul is just, he nails this conclusion to this section. And he starts this conclusion out with a key question. If God is for us, who can be against us? In light of that providential, incredible calling and work that he does, who can be against us? No one. No one has the ability to nullify, cancel, change, or disrupt God's ultimate good for his saints. Why not? He gives a good answer. Because God has made 
the greatest possible sacrifice already for us, not sparing his only son. Thus, will he not now provide everything we will need to finish the task? If he's willing to pay that much up front, will he not get the job done? He will, Paul says. He goes on. Will anyone be able to bring a charge against these folks, these called, these elect? No, because God has already declared us righteous and justified as a result of our faith in him. So no charge will stand against, against us. The accuser of the brethren who loves to try bringing charges will stand no case when God the Father looks to us and he says, I see my son, I see them moving in conformity, I see the price that's been paid, and I've declared them justified. The charge that you're leveling, I cast it aside. Who will then be able to condemn us for some sort of a charge? He says, will someone be able to condemn us? No, because Christ has already been the one that took upon himself the condemnation of us. And if you're questioning, well, perhaps that condemnation he took on himself wasn't successful. Well, Paul answers that. He says, did you catch that? He says, it was Christ who died being condemned for our sins. And how do you know that that was successfully looked upon by the father? He was raised, he says. He was raised, proving that he was successful in, in appeasing the Father's righteous demands. And oh, by the way, it didn't end there. It says he's now there at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. This is the ultimate legal representation. This is the ultimate Aaron Sachs, the 777, 777, if you want to call and God probably likes that number with it being complete and nice and full. But none, nonetheless, we are talking about legal representation in the highest courts possible. And he stands there interceding for us as his saints and his called one. He goes on. And who can separate us from the love of Christ, our intercessor? No one can. And what can, it, can come in the way or separate us from the love of Christ? Problems, tribulations, persecutions, sufferings, groanings, issues, tribulations. No, those things cannot separate us because we, just like Christ, had to face death and face suffering and had to be led like a sheep to slaughter. Paul decides to go back and quote a psalm right in the middle. Of us. What does that have to do with it? Well, interesting because he, he says, we too live as if sheep led to slaughter, but what do we know is the end of the story for Christ? He conquered. He conquered death, which is what Paul says next. Through all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. And so it is that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then Paul closes with his own personal conviction. He says, nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, can separate you and us from the love of God. And he decides, I'm just going to give him a list of about everything I could think of. Death, life, powers, principalities, the future things to come, things of the past, the, you know, heights, all these different things he brings up. Nothing can separate you from the love of God for those who are called according to his purposes. And thus, you get to the end of Romans 8, a picture at the beginning of our responsibility as believers to walk by the Spirit, being set free from 
from the, the sinful demands of the flesh to live with a confident expectation and hope in the glorification to come, looking for our redemption of our bodies. To live as, with perseverance, he says, a call for us, even though we suffer and we groan, to live in perseverance and to know and understand God's providential calling. Those are all things for us. But half the chapter, he also laid out all this thing about what God has done, the work of God. And it's huge. We've seen the actions of God the Father. We've seen the actions of God the Son. We've seen the actions of God the Spirit, that he set us free from the law of sin and death. He gave us an example of suffering. He gave actions in subjecting the creation to futility for now with the hopes that they will one day be set free from that cycle. He gave us his spirit who will go before the Father, praying on our behalf, making sure to align to the Father's will. We see him working all things together for our good. We see that those who are called have been predestined and justified and glorified with the ultimate goal of being conformed to the image of his son. And we see his work providing our defense and our justification before the father. And now we see that he is ensuring that nothing can separate us from his love. And this is the invisible hand of God at work in those that are his redeemed and his chosen. Now, I promised that I would give you some narrative stories. Last week, I said there are some awesome stories in the Bible because I think the God we just read about has been the same God through all of the Old Testament and still is the same today. His handiwork is all over the place. You turn and you see it everywhere. And I'm first going to give you a, a personal story and then two very quick stories from the scripture. Um, so this is where we're going to go back to the geeky, sort of nerdy sort of thing that Gary sort of laid the groundwork for. We're going to go back to a C++ class that I took in 1995. But before I get there, you got to know a little bit of tiny background here. Uh, so in, in the spring of 95, I, I had finished up, uh, I'd finished up my first year starting into my second year at the University of Kansas. The, the fall semester that year was, was horrible. I, I mean, I just... I, I, I still to this day call it the wake-up call. I mean, I slept in. I decided to skip every most classes. I said, I, I'm smart enough. I can figure it out. I'll just read the, I'll read the Cliff's notes, and I'll read. But then I didn't actually read much either. So, you know, I just sort of lays around, didn't do much, didn't apply myself well. And, and sure enough, when Christmas rolled around, the grade card showed up in the mail. I remember getting it, and I won't tell you what the number was because it was a very low GPA for that semester. In fact, I found myself having to retake two classes, and I was like, wow, and, and I was in tears, and I was devastated. I always wanted to be an electrical engineer since I was a little kid and had this, this dream of doing this, but it just, I just didn't have my act together, and I and I, but I prayed at that. I remember sitting with my dad and on the, on the bed. I'll never forget that night. And I prayed and I saw, you know, just like, I got to turn this around. You know, this isn't, this isn't how I wanted it to go. And I'm just not doing it right. And I need to do a better job. And I need to turn to the Lord. And so I did. I turned to the Lord. I said, I'm going I'm to go back in the spring. I'm going to start afresh. I'm going to start anew. And I'm going to work my tail off. I'm going to just get out there and, and, and really see if I can get this done. And so that's what I did. And one of the classes I was taking was in C++ programming. And, you know, it was, it was an interesting class. You know, I start out 
it was early in the semester trying to sort of get to know the professor, what he, what he, how he wanted us to do, conduct our work and whatnot. And it came time for one of our first big assignments to come due. Now, again, I'm working my tail off, trying to get focused, redirected. I had made a good friend in the class. He, like me, was, you know, we really had to really, really work to understand this stuff. It wasn't, wasn't necessarily coming that easy. And we, he and I would meet, and we would study things out and how to code. And anyway, it came time to turn in this assignment. I turned in my assignment. Mike turned his assignment in. We went away. Now, about, I don't know how many days, it was either later in the week or early the next week, the professor makes an announcement in the class. He said, I uh, got your, got your you know, assignments graded. Come up and get them. Uh, just so you know, Joel Butler and Mike, uh, they will be receiving zeros for their, for their, uh, for their efforts because they have cheated. And they will serve as a warning to those of you that, that decide you want to cheat in the classroom. And I was like, I mean, I, I began to, sh I was like, I, 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 was, I was shaking. I was, I was devastated. I was like, what? I mean, we had, I had worked so hard and I, I put in all kinds of time. This isn't how I would have wanted this to go. This doesn't seem to be working out for my good right now. And I'm like this, you know, I remember going to his office hours and that right afterwards, of course, I'm following him right behind him. Like head down, like I don't know what, what this is going. And and I sit down and I tell him, I was like, we did not cheat. And he goes, well, one of you guys copied the other one. It's you, you know, you you guys have cheated. I'm throwing it out. You get zeros. I say, like, well, it's no doubt we worked, we studied this stuff a lot together. We we were trying to get understand it. And so you know, there, that's not a surprise that some of our coding has some similarities. Because no, I can tell you guys, there's some. There, you, one of you copied the other, and I said, no, we did not copy one another. We we worked heavily on it, but we did not copy the other one's work. And we were, well, it's too late. You have to make do the best you can. It's your choice. He goes, if really, he goes, I have the option. I could turn you in. You could be expelled from the school. I could take further action if I want. And I was like, man, this is this is going from bad to even potentially worse. And I was like, this this is just horrible. Um, but he didn't, he didn't expel us. I said, well, I've got a zero for my first major assignment. I only have a handful of, it was a huge assignment, some sort of bubble search algorithm or something. I don't remember what it was. But anyway, I poured in a zero on that meant that it's going to be hard to pass. I'm going to have to pretty much ace everything out. So I had to buckle it down and study and study and study and work. And if there is a little moral to the story, if you're a college student in a class right now, you might check with your professor whether it's okay to have any collaboration with any other people because they might be very sensitive to any sort of collaboration. But anyway, I kept working. Mike kept working. Anyway, I was praying. I was working. I was praying. And little by little, step by step, my C++ assignments were yielding A's. Test scores were yielding A's. And the professor himself, you sensed that he felt bad about really what had happened. He wanted, he realized he had made a little bit of an overstatement with what he did, but he had made it public, so public, that there was no going back. He wouldn't renege on the zero. Uh, but long story short, I ended up finishing then passing that class, just barely, just by just, I don't, you know, just barely passing. And I went on. And you say, well, what does this have to do with Romans 8? Well, 
that was a tough time. A lot of suffering through that, almost like a false accusation in my mind, trying to work through it. And I finished my degree. Fast forward to 98-99. I'm hired to work by a, de by a defense contractor. They, they have a problem with a GLONASS Russian GPS system satellite simulator device. It simulates multiple satellites, so you can plug a re receiver in, a GPS receiver, and test to see whether you can fake it out, make it think it's seeing motion, movement, see different, different lat lons and all this stuff. Couldn't get this thing to work. They're having bugs, problems. It just so happened that this GLONASS satellite simulator was coded in C++. And it just so happened that my boss says, I know someone that I, has shown that they know C++ very well. And, and that's, our, that's our new hire, Joel Butler. Let's have him work on the GPS simulator. And so I set to work, studying the code, reading it out. And I will tell you that had I not been forced to really learn C++, not just pass a class, you know, half-heartedly, but really, the Lord says, I'm going to have to have this guy really learn this stuff, and I'm going to teach him it. It won't be fun, but I'm going to teach him the hard way, and then when he gets to the other side, lo and behold, I remember sitting there one night working on this simulator, hoping to see the receiver light up that it sees satellites and that it's tracking a lock on Russian satellites, and I was there praying and going back, and all of a sudden, the receiver starts lighting up locked, locked, locked. And it sees, it, it sees a, a constellation of GLONASS satellites. And I, I remember literally jumping for joy in the, in the lab. I'm like, yes, yes. I was like, you did it, you know. And I, and I got down, and I prayed, and I thanked the Lord. And none of that would happen had I not been brought through the fire of having to really learn this stuff called C++. Now, that's God's providential hand in my life with a brief story. And I know we're, you'll have to bear with me for a few more minutes. I know we'll probably go over slightly here, thanks to Gary and myself. We, we sometimes go a little long. But let's look at two real fast stories in the Bible that have his name all over it and his handiwork all over it. Uh, first story is a story that God's name and his work are, are clear they're clearly evident to the participants. He sends priests and prophets. He announces his will. He announces his direction. There's an anointing. Samuel journeys to Bethlehem to select God's king. And the subsequent handiwork that, that comes out of this story is showing God's ability to take a shepherd boy and turn him into a powerful king. Now, it wasn't without sin. It wasn't without struggle. It wasn't without groaning. It wasn't without even despair and fully giving up. And yet, Romans 8 is on full display in this story of David. And there's another book in the Bible that some theologians have studied and they say, I don't even think this book should be in the canon of Scripture. And it's another story, but quite different in one aspect, and that is no mention of God in the entire book. And that is why the theologians, let's get rid of that book. It shouldn't be in the canon because God's name is never once mentioned. There's not even a single thing that says they prayed. There's indication they did those things, but it never fully says it. And right in the middle of the story, there's a question. Perhaps this is why. 
perhaps there's a bigger providential plan. And in the middle of this awesome story of Esther, we see God's providential power on display and his handiwork's written all over it. And so some theologians end up at the other end of the spectrum, more like I do, which is the book of Esther is the most true-to-life biblical example of God's providence precisely because God seems absent. And that's, it's like he was his purpose to make sure that his name was not recorded, but his hand is written all over it. And so these two stories I want to quickly put before you. We look at David as a teenager. He's anointed by a prophet of God to be the king over all Israel. Clearly, this is the will of God and God's choice. And we see God's selection of David is unknown to the existing King Saul. David's early years go well, right? Goliath, he's made general of the Israeli army. He's has reached a pinnacle of success. They sing songs about him. But after this initial success, things sort of turn a little bit differently for David. All of a sudden, Saul's throwing spears at him left and right. Saul's hunting him down, wants him dead. And, and David ends up spending probably the better part of a decade on the run. And he gets, he gets to the point where he fully despairs. He fully gives up. We know that because it says that he just, he realizes, now I know that one day I'll die by the hand of King Saul. And he runs and joins the Philistines. And he spends one year and three months with the enemy. And on the eve of David going into, the, into battle to fight with the Philistines against Israel, all of a sudden, the Philistine kings, I don't know if I like having this David guy. Let's send him back. And all of a sudden, as David's walking back with his men to their, their town of Ziklag, they see smoke from a distance. And as they get closer, they realize their whole town's been destroyed. And that his wa their wives and their sons and their daughters and everything they own have been carried away. And worse yet, his men speak of stoning him. And this is at the moment he's at one of his lowest lows as a result of his own decisions. But God causes all things to work together somehow for good here. God, David then strengthens himself, it says, in the Lord his God. He seeks the Lord's direction. And God gives him a very clear answer through Abiathar and the ephod. He says, pursue the raiders. You will surely overcome everything. And so it is that David recovers everything that's lost. And oh, by the way, that battle I mentioned with the Philistines and the Israelites, guess what happens that, the, that very later on that day? Saul and Jonathan are killed. And two days after that, David becomes queen. Or not, not queen, sorry. That's Esther. I'm getting my stories. David becomes king over, over Hebron, over the southern tribe of Judah. And then years after that, king over all Israel. The point is, God made good despite David's struggles. Despite the fact that he sinned at times and fell away into despair. God did cause it all to work together for, for good. Then you look at Esther. This, you know, you have just, just so happens that the queen of Persia decides to do something ill-advised and she's set aside. Many women are then considered for her replacement. Hadassah, a, a younger Jewish girl whose parents had died, who had been being raised by her older cousin Mordecai, she begins to shine amongst this group of women that had been chosen. Her Jewish identity had been kept a secret. But the king selects her, Ahasuerus, gives her the crown. And from there on out, the story goes mainly by her Persian name, 
which is Esther, meaning star. Now, a few years into her position, a sworn enemy of the Jews, the Agagite Haman, rises to a position of power, and he decrees absolute annihilation on the Jewish people, God's chosen, chosen people. And you'd say, now what? What's going to, this doesn't, this is a, seems like a disaster. And they were, the Jews were, they were, they were in, in, they were just distraught, it said, over what, what was happening. And this is when we have that famous statement by Mordecai to Esther in verse 14. He says, for if you, Esther, remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews. He was confident God would get it done, but it'll come from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. And that's the question. Is, is there a providential reason? Is there a reason, Esther, you've been put on the throne in this way? And so it is that Esther requests a fast and that she then decides after fasting to enter the very throne room of the king upon fear of death, unsure of the outcome. And, and the Lord did an awesome thing. He extended the, extended the scepter. She lives. And then it's right there. She has her chance to make a request known. And the king says, let it be known. Anything. Even if it's to the half of the kingdom. I would like a dinner banquet. That's what I would like to have with you and Haman. So she has dinner banquet number one. They get there. The king says, whatever you would want. To, I know there's, there's clearly something on your heart. Some request. Make it known. Even if it's to half the kingdom. I want a second dinner party the next night. And you're like, I wonder why. Well, I think that you can read the story why. God's hand here at work that very night in between dinner party one and dinner party two Haman goes home very proud. He goes, I got to go to the, the dinner banquet with the queen. And look at how incredible the position I am. This is Haman now. And he's like, and you know, I hate that Mordecai guy because he won't bow to me. And he's a Jew. And I hate the Jewish people. He's already had a decree issued to have him destroyed in the 12th month. And that's, that's on its way. It's approaching. Because I want to hang, hang Mordecai. They say, go build a gallows. So he builds a gallows. That night, they work in constructing this gallows to hang Mordecai the next morning. And it just so happens that the king goes back to his bed and goes to bed that night before dinner, after dinner party one, going to dinner party two. And it just so happens that he can't sleep. And it just so happens that he says, bring me the record of the legal transactions and things that have occurred in my kingdom. And they begin reading it off. And it just so happens that they land on the story of Mordecai and how he had saved the king's life earlier in the story. And he said, what was done for Mordecai? They said, nothing was done for him. And he said, go out right now. It's getting early, early morning. Go out and look in the court and see if there's anyone out there. I need to talk to someone about this immediately. Just so happens that Haman comes in gleefully prepared to talk about how he wants to hang Mordecai on the gallows. And the king's servant says, I see Haman has arrived and he's in the court. The king says, bring Haman in. I want to talk to him. So the Haman comes into the king and the king's there and says, Haman, what would I need to do if I wanted to really honor someone that was deserving of honor and praise because they had done something great for me as a king? They had saved my life. And Haman thinks, well, you must be thinking of me. You know, I mean, this, 
they're talking about me. And he goes, I know what you should do. You should take the royal robe and put it on this individual. You should take that individual and put them on your royal steed. And you should then have one of your servants pro have a procession through the city capital of Susa with the steed and the person on the back pronouncing, this is what shall be done for those who the king chooses and loves and wants to honor. And he says, Haman, I want you to do that for Mordecai. And, <laughs> and it, it, Haman, I'm sure just stricken with a what in the world. I mean, he was only moments away from asking to hang Mordecai, but that isn't the result today. And so it was that instead of Mordecai being hung, they had the dinner party the next night. And it comes about, the king says, what is it that you want, Esther? Tell me anything that you want. And this time, I think probably moved by the spirit, it's time to make the request known now. She lets him know, there's an enemy of my people that wishes to destroy my people. And it's Haman. And immediately, he's called out. And you know the story. The, the king actually leaves the room for a moment, then comes back in and finds Haman begging and pleading on the couch with her. And he says, you're even going to try to assault her? And he says, immediately, what shall we do with this guy, this evil Haman? And they said, well, guess what? It just so happened that he himself had created a gallows to hang Mordecai on. And he says, perfect. And it says they, put a, they covered his face right then and there and led him away to be hanged. So it was that Haman ends up being destroyed along with his descendants, it says in the rest of the story. And a new decree is issued to save the Jewish people, to allow them to defend themselves. And thus Esther 9.1, in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, that was the first edict, to destroy the Jews. On that day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. And just by the way, it just so happened that Haman was an Agagite, a descendant of the kingly line of the Amalekites, whom God had sworn in Exodus 17, say, mark it down, recite it before Joshua, that I will have war with Amalek for every generation. And so it was that Haman met his end. And the Jews still celebrate in 2021 the deliverance that God accomplished. So you have David. You have Esther. One, you see God's prophets, his word, his direction, his anointing, his efforts, his, his direction over and over. And you, and you see David struggle. And he's in the hole. He doesn't do that well. But God works it out. And he puts him on the throne. You see Esther you have no mention of any prophets. You have no mention of God did this or God did that by the narrator. The guy who's moved by the Spirit to write the story didn't even do that. But yet, you have the question, was there a providential reason why you got to this position? Is there a God over Israel that does care about his people who will make good on his promises of Exodus 17 and who will make promise, good on his promises that those who bless you will be blessed, Israel, and those who curse you will be cursed. And that's the record of Esther. Both stories end in completion as God accomplishing what he intended to do. And you not look at David and think, did he not look back and realize that those years on the run, they, they, they moved him and trained him and prepared him for what he would do as a king? And he did. 
And Esther, do you not think she could answer the question of Mordecai later? Yeah, it was. There was a reason why I became queen for this very hour, to save these people, your people, Lord. You know, we had a guy on the camping trip mention that he had lost his house in a fire just a, a day before Christmas Eve. And you got to listen to the handiwork of God that unfolded. And you'd say, it's almost hard to believe that God could turn a disaster, like have, losing your house on Christmas Eve, and turn it around for good. Uh, but that's what God does. And he does it all the time in our lives. And so keep the faith. Believe in your all-powerful God. Know what he's already done for you. Walk by his spirit. Believe in the words of Romans 8 without having to build theological constructs to try to get around or explain these truths. Just let them stand. The reality is true. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's say a prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time to read it. We thank you that the fact that you, have, you do cause all things to work together for good. I thank you for the patience of these people here to wait, even though I've gone over. I hope that your stories and your power and your word rings true in our lives, that the story of Esther, the story of David, and the stories, each and every story of the people that are sitting in this auditorium, that are those that love you and are called according to your purposes, they each have a story, and they each can look and they can see that was God. That was the invisible, providential hand of an all-powerful God that loves me. And if they find themselves in despair and in the pit and in turmoil and tribulation and suffering, may they look up and realize that God will somehow, some way, cause it to work together for good. I pray you'll go before us today and guide us as we walk forth from here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.